0: Uh, on Thursday night, uh, all three of my sons and I went and saw uh, uh, the movie Southpaw. It stars Jake Gyllenhaal. Anybody, anybody heard of the movie? Anybody seen the movie? Okay, some of you guys have seen it, heard of it. Uh, he plays a championship boxer named Billy Hope who has it all. He's got everything. He's got money. He's got fame. He's got influence. He's got titles. He's got uh, titles. You know, he's got a beautiful estate, he's got a beautiful wife, he's got a beautiful little girl. And then in a series of events that I'm not going to ruin for you, uh, he, loses, uh, he loses it all. He's an aging, uh, beaten up physically and beaten up emotionally uh, boxer. And as you might imagine, if you've kind of seen these kinds of movies before, uh, the rest of the movie is about Billy trying to uh, fight and claw his way back to uh, just for a chance to be on top again. And I don't want to spoil the movie for you, so I'm going I'm to pick my way through this very carefully. Uh, but near the end of the movie, Billy fights the reigning champion in his weight class. And after 12 rounds, like he doesn't knock him out, so after 12 rounds, the three judges have come to a split decision. The announcer has Billy uh, on his right, and he has his opponent on his left. And he reads the first judge's scorecard which goes to Billy's opponent. Uh, he reads the second judge's scorecard, which goes to Billy, which means the third judge will be the tiebreaker. Now understand that for the last hour and a half, we've been immersed in Billy's life, right? And aided by you know music and lighting and good writing, uh, we have felt his love, for his wife and his daughter. We felt his pain when he lost everything. I mean, some of us have even, like I found myself immersing myself in his life, wondering how would I respond if I lost everything and had to, had to fight and claw my way back uh, to the top again, you know? We felt the discouragement that he experiences as he tries to fight and claw his way back. So the extended pause... Because you know they got to do that in a movie, right? The extended pause between you know the the first two judges and the third judge, as we wait for the third judge, the extended pause is just excruciating. It's impossible in the moment to just watch this uh, passively. I mean, I found I was like I was tense. I was on the edge of my seat. I couldn't breathe. I was willing the decision to be in Billy's favor. And I'm not going to tell you what happened, again, because I don't want to ruin the movie, except to say just this, that, it, that, that it, it may surprise you. Like what the ending is, it may surprise you, which leaves you now in complete limbo. You're like, I don't know which way it went. That's okay, because that's really not the thing that I'm interested in this morning. The decision itself is not what I'm interested in. Here, here's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in that feeling between the second judge's card and the third judge's card. That, that moment between those two. Like, what is it that when you're watching a movie that you know isn't real, it's like completely fictitious, what is it about it that you're still tense? Like you, you're, you're dying to know what's going to happen. What is that uh, sense that when you're on the edge of your seat just Willing the final judge to decide in Billy's favor. What is that feeling? Why does that happen? What is that longing in your soul that so wants him to judge in Billy's favor? Because here's the thing. Everybody feels it. Like, everybody feels that in the moment. In fact, Hollywood makes a fortune off of that feeling. What is that feeling? And very simply, here's what that feeling is. It's hope. That's what it is. It's hope. The the Bible says that God has set hope in the hearts of humanity. This he, sets, he, he put in us, it's, it's just part of our DNA, it's, it's how we're born into the world, that we have this, this longing that despite how everything looks in the world, despite how it's all, it feels like maybe it's all broken and things aren't right with the world, that one day things are going to get better, that everything wrong is one day going to be made straight that pain and injustice and sickness and death and all the things that are wrong with the world will one day be reversed. That's what hope is. God has set that in your heart, okay? That's what that longing is. Now, those of you who've been with us know that we're in a series this morning of the Gospel of Mark. We're looking at the first half of the Gospel of Mark, which covers three and a half years in the life of Jesus. Later on, we're gonna look at the last half of the book of Mark, which covers just the last eight days of Jesus' life, but we're gonna look at the first half. We're looking at the first half right now, three and a half years in the life of Jesus. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to go ahead and turn with me in it to Mark chapter four. Mark chapter four. And you see, here's the thing. It would be very easy to look around the world today and become very discouraged by what you see. And become very discouraged that the hope that God has set in your hearts, that longing that everything will be made right, it would, become, it would be very easy to become very discouraged that that hope is ever going to be realized. And here's the thing. Hope unfulfilled leads to despair. It leads to cynicism. It leads to snarkiness. You know what I mean by snarkiness? It's pretty much everything that you hear, everything that you read on social media. That's what snarkiness is, all right? And it leads to philosophical nihilism. And so in this passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus encourages us. He encourages his followers that are, uh, uh, that are listening to him in the first century, but he's also encouraging us today all the way down, 20, 21 centuries later. He's encouraging us that despite how things may look, your hope, that hope, that longing that in your heart is one day going to be fulfilled. And specifically, let me just tell you what he's going to do. He's going to tell us three things today. First, he's going to tell us that his kingdom is coming. His kingdom is coming. And when it does, he will indeed make everything wrong in the world right. That's the first, first thing he's going to tell us is that his kingdom is coming. Second, he's going to explain the organizing, the central organizing principle of his kingdom And then third, he's going to give us a clue as to how his kingdom will begin. Okay, so his kingdom is coming. He's going to give us the organizing principle of the kingdom. And then he's going to tell us, he's going to give us a clue as to how his kingdom will begin. Now let me just tell you that the passage that we're going to look at this morning is a very complicated passage. Uh, I mean, I'm just going to tell you that uh, from the outset. And so because of how it's laid out, because of how complicated it is, because of, how it's, 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 uh, uh, because of how Jesus lays it out, I think it'll be better for us to start in the middle at verse 26, and then we're going to work our way back to the beginning uh, later on. Okay, so let's start at verse 26. Chapter 4, Mark chapter 4, verse 26. Jesus is speaking in a parable here. Verse 26, he also said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Okay, some of you who have been with us, remember the last parable that he taught was about seed. Okay? So this man scatters seed on the ground night and day. Whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. Okay? Verse 30. Again he said, What shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? This is like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you plant in the ground. Yet when planted, it grows and becomes the largest of all garden plants. With such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything. So in other words, he speaks in these parables, but when he, when he gets his disciples alone, and you're going to understand why in just a minute, uh, when he gets his disciples alone, he explains uh, what these parables are about. Part of what makes this passage so complicated is the theme of the passage. I started in the middle because I wanted you to see the theme from the outset. Here's the theme. I told you just a moment ago. Here it is. The theme of the passage is this, that Jesus is tell us, telling us that his kingdom is coming. Okay? Underline the word kingdom in verses uh, 26 and 30. If you have, a, if you have a, a, a hard copy of the Bible, just underline verse 26, underline verse 30, circle the word kingdom, perhaps, because that's what this passage is about. Now, For those of you who have been with us throughout this series Uh, you may remember that Jesus' first words in chapter 1 were that the kingdom of God is near. Uh, That's how he came into the world. That's how he came announcing. He said said, the kingdom of God is near. But not much has been said about it since. Part of what makes this passage so complicated also is that Jesus' life, for those of you who've been with us, uh, again, you know this, his life is already in danger. People are plotting against him. And so talking about a kingdom in the midst of the Roman Empire was even more dangerous. And it wasn't yet time for Jesus' death. And so this is why he tells these parables. He's speaking cryptically about this kingdom. So that those who follow him will understand. But those who are there in his midst just to spy on him just to create problems for him, won't understand what he's saying. So he speaks about these kingdoms, uh, excuse me, about this kingdom in parables, doing it cryptically, so that those who are around him that are sincere can find out more, those who are not sincere, um, they won't understand what he's saying. Okay, you got that. Okay, so here's the question. What is this kingdom that he's referring to, and why is this kingdom such good news? Well, notice in verses 31 and 32, Jesus Look how he compares this. Look at what he says. He he compares it to the smallest mustard seed. And then in verse 32, he says, yet when planted, it grows and it becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that the birds of the air can perch in its shade. Okay, you and I don't get this because we don't understand the Old Testament like Jesus' uh, first hearers would have understood uh, as Jesus' first hearers did. They would have understood this very, very well, okay? If you go back into the Old Testament, specifically back into the prophets, you will see um, prophets like Ezekiel and Daniel and some of the other prophets make reference to something that I guess the best way to describe it for uh, describe it to you this morning is as uh, the Great World Tree. That's the best way I can think of to describe it. And what this tree is is that it's a connector between heaven and earth. Sort of like it's sort of like the spine of the universe which connects heaven and earth. Now, you understand that the tree is just like it's a symbol. That's, that's all it is. In fact, it's just one symbol. There are other symbols in the Old Testament of this, things like ladders and bridges and mountains and those kinds of things. But what all of these symbols are communicating is the whole history of the world according to the Bible. And here's how it goes. Originally, God dwelt among us. And when he dwelt on earth, the whole world was like a garden paradise. No death, there was no disease, there was no sickness, uh, there was no injustice, there was no racism, there was no poverty, there was no, no brokenness of any kind. Why? Why? Because God's relational presence is the only environment in which all created things could flourish. That's it. His relational presence is the only environment in which people can flourish. Okay? It's like he's... He's like the soil that every created thing has to be planted into if we're ever gonna blossom. Otherwise, we just stay, you know, we just stay acorns. Like, our potentialities don't erupt and and explode outward unless we're in the presence of God, unless our lives are planted in him. But the Bible says that human beings rejected God's rule and reign uh, over their lives, and they wanted autonomy from him. And as a result, God's presence was withdrawn from the world, okay? And in that moment, heaven was separated from earth, and the eternal becomes remote from the temporal, and the ideal is remote from the real. And as a result of God's presence being withdrawn, we live in this tragically broken world. Once our relationship with God unraveled, every other relationship Unraveled. We experienced psychological disintegration and we experienced psychological alienation and we ex- experienced social and cultural and physical disintegration and alienation. In fact, every kind of disintegration and alienation humanity has experienced. But, but, the prophets foresaw, because God gave them uh, visions of it, the prophets, like Ezekiel and Daniel and others, they foresaw a day in which God will plant, and again, just a symbol, right? But God will plant a great tree that someday will reconnect heaven and earth, and the presence of God will reenter the earth, and that longing in your soul that's called hope, it'll be realized. Like the earth will be a paradise again. That's, that's the reason for this illustration of a, of a great tree in the prophets that unites heaven and earth and, and it gives food and shelter and it's home for all the creatures of the earth. And so what Jesus is picturing here when he refers to this, uh, to this uh, mustard tree, what, what he's referring to is the kingdom of God. Okay? That day in the future, someday, uh, we don't know when, And look, there is no point in trying to guess when it's going to happen. And uh, the people who do try to guess when it's going to happen are fools. And those who follow those who uh, try to guess when it's going to happen are fools too. Uh, There is someday in the future that Jesus is going to return to the earth physically. And he's going to rule the world. And when he does, he will turn this world into the home that our hearts most desperately want. That's the kingdom of God. A world that's cleansed of disease and decay and death and injustice and racism and every brokenness of every kind. And you will be cleansed. Those who believe in him will be cleansed of all of your brokenness too. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Every kind of brokenness you will be healed of. Okay? And those who believe in Christ will live on this renewed earth with Jesus ruling the earth for all of eternity. That's the kingdom of God. Heaven renewing earth. God putting everything right. And Jesus says, I'm bringing that. Your hope will be fulfilled. It's coming. It's real. It's certain. My kingdom is coming. Okay, that's the first thing that we learn from this passage is that there is going to come a day when it is all gonna be put right. Jesus' kingdom is coming. Okay, that's the first thing that we learn. Now, here's the thing. But there is a sense in which Jesus' kingdom isn't just coming. Like there's a sense in which um, his kingdom is already present in the world now. Not in a fully realized form, okay? Not like it will be one day. But in, shall we say, um, a beta version, okay? Kind of a beta version here on the earth right now in the lives of Jesus' followers. in The lives of people who believe in him who are already learning to live under his rule and reign. And Jesus wants us to understand that his kingdom, that the way it works is very different than the way the rest of the world works. And so he tells us in this passage um, what we could call this morning the central organizing principle of his kingdom the central organizing principle of his kingdom. And it's in verses 24 and 25. Look at verse 24 again. He says, consider carefully what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. Now, look, I know, again, this is complicated, so I know that it doesn't just jump out at you. So I'm going to just get to the chase in the interest of time and tell you very simply what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is that the people who give the most have the most. Um, The more you give, the more you will have. In other words, the organizing principle of Jesus' kingdom is just, it's just this, that the way to fullness is to empty yourself. That the way to fullness in life is to empty yourself. And don't think when he's talking about giving that he's just talking about finances. This is not like a thing about, you know, if you, if you give, you'll get rich. That's, that's not what he's saying, okay? He's talking about life in general. He's saying that the way to fullness in life is to empty yourself. That's how his kingdom works. And if you think about it for a moment, that is absolutely the reverse of how the world looks at life, okay? Everything else in our culture, looks at life very differently. In fact, this is why, if you guys look on the sides of the room, uh, we have four banners, they're, they're the same on both sides. The third banner uh, says, unlearn, unlearn. And the reason that we put that over there is that we want you to understand that when, it, when you believe in Jesus, when you come under his reign and rule over your life, okay, you suddenly realize that everything that you have ever thought you knew about life Gets turned completely upside down. It's like you have to unlearn everything you knew about life. So, for instance, the world says, the way to fullness is to accumulate. And Jesus says, no, the way to fullness is to give. The world says, keep moving up, keep moving up. And Jesus says, no, the way to fullness is to keep moving down. The world says, seek influence and seek power. And Jesus says the opposite. He says, the way to influence and power is to serve. To serve. The world says, find yourself and be happy. And Jesus says, the way to find yourself and to be happy is to never try to find yourself and never concentrate on being happy. But instead, to lose yourself serving God, serving other people, and trying to make other people happy. That's how you find yourself. Okay. The world says, be magnificent. Jesus says, uh, you know, the way to magnificence uh, goes through Humility. The world says, be free, be independent. And Jesus says, the way to be free is to go to God and say, command me, I am your servant. What would you have me do? That's how to be free. See, the operating principle of the kingdom, it's the absolute reverse of how the world looks at life, how it regards money, how it regards power, how it regards recognition, how it regards status, how it regards comfort, and how it even regards happiness. It's just absolutely the reverse and you have to unlearn all of that when you come to Jesus. This, by the way, is one of the reasons that the gospel has always been so appealing, not to the powerful and to the elite, not to the successful and the wealthy and the famous, but to the marginalized and to the suffering of the world. Do you, you understand why? Uh, here, here's, here's why. The first thing that the gospel says to anyone is that the way to go up is to go down. You want fullness, you have to empty yourself. You want life, you have to go down to admit that you're a sinner. Uh, Admit that you are a moral failure. (laughs) Now that is not very hard to do for those who've always been down and who know that they've been moral failures and who have always, like all of their lives, been marginalized, right? But the people who are at the top of the food chain to the elite, sometimes even to the religious elite who believe that they've earned their way there and that they're entitled to their status and their position and who take pride in their accomplishments and the things that they do, who frankly just don't think that they are broken. It's very difficult, very difficult to admit that you're a moral failure. That is very difficult. It's difficult to go down. It's difficult to repent When you think you have it all together. But Jesus says that that's the way to fullness. To empty yourself. That the way up is down. And see this, if you understand that this is the organizing principle of the kingdom. If you understand that this is the organizing principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will create Uh, It it will give you, it it, it will create in you an individual life that looks utterly different from the way in which the world operates. And not only will it give you uh, a different life individually, but it will create a whole community of people called the local church. It will create a community of people who operate utterly differently from the rest of the world, not in a strange way, Right, like not in a strange way, but in a beautiful way. People who imitate Jesus, who are willing to abandon themselves for the good of other people. Imagine a city like that. That's why, that's why we, we say the very last banner around the room says change the city. You gotta believe in Jesus. And you experience life in a community of people in a local church that are living utterly differently, and you unlearn everything that you thought you knew about life, and then you go out and you take that into the city, and it begins to change a city, and it can change a city like the city of Evansville. If we take the gospel in our lives out into the city as we understand this organizing principle of the kingdom of God, let me ask you, let me just ask you, what would it change in your life? Maybe I should start here. What would it change in your marriage if you began to understand that the way to fullness in your marriage is to empty yourself? What would it change uh, in your career if you began to understand that the way to fullness in your career, the way to real satisfaction in your career, is to empty yourself? What would it change in your education? What would it change in your sex life? if you began to live according to this operating principle of the kingdom, that the way to fullness is to empty yourself. Okay? Jesus wants us to understand. This is the central operating principle of his kingdom. If you want to live in his kingdom, if you want to be a part of his kingdom, if you want to, if you want to contribute to his kingdom, you've got to understand that the way to fullness is to empty yourself. Now, last thing, okay, last thing. Jesus knows that when his followers hear this word kingdom, they're, what do you think of when you think of kingdom? Like he knows that they're automatically gonna start thinking grandiose thoughts. Okay. Because the people of Israel at this time that Jesus is writing to them, they were longing for a king. They were longing for a Messiah to come with power and with might and in a decisive victory dethrone the Roman government and reestablish like a powerful political kingdom for Israel. But if that's what they're looking for, At least in the beginning stages of Jesus' kingdom, they wouldn't see it. Um, The beginning stages of Jesus' kingdom would be hidden from them if they're looking for something grandiose. They'd be discouraged by the events that he knows are going to take place soon. And so he starts this parable you saw it. He, start, he started this parable by describing like the seed that goes into the ground and the farmer doesn't see anything happening. It's like it's the, he doesn't know what's going on. He, but, it, but, but it is coming to life underground. But, but all of that, all of the stuff that's coming to life, it's inconspicuous. You can't see it. it, it it's, it's like the human eye can't see what's going on underneath the ground. And then he tells them in verse 21, he says to them, Read this. He said to them, "Uh, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Okay, what's the answer to that? No, of course not. Instead, don't you put it on its stand. Why? So that it can be seen, of course. For whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. And then he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, essentially, what he is saying is, I want you to be able to see the development of this kingdom that I'm gonna bring. I don't want it to be hidden to you. And so, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear, meaning, listen closely. Because I'm going to give you a very important clue about how uh, my kingdom is going to begin. That if you didn't know this clue, you'd be very discouraged. So make sure you pay attention. And the clue is found in verse 31. After Jesus asks, and he kind of asks it playfully. He says, what shall we say the kingdom of God is like? Okay. He, 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 he says, he says it's, it's right here, this clue. Perhaps knowing that there's traitors in his midst, even as he talks. He says this to them cryptically. He says, well, the kingdom of God, he says, it's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that you can plant in the ground. And that's the clue. Now, oh, you gotta listen to this because this is really cool. By using this metaphor of a mustard seed, Jesus is telling them that the clue that his kingdom is beginning will be his death. That his death will be the beginning of the kingdom, his death. Go back through all of the metaphors in this passage. them. you see a lamp under a bushel. You see a seed going into the ground. You see the smallest of seeds becoming the biggest of trees. What do you really see there? Jesus is the light of the world. And they tried to put him under a bushel, but he broke out. Jesus himself said, he said, I'm a seed. They put me into the ground, but I'm going to come out. See, what they would have been looking for, the kingdom that they were looking for was powerful, decisive, uh, mighty. They wouldn't, you know, triumph. They wouldn't have expected that the king who's going to bring a kingdom is going to die. And so Jesus gives them this clue to start out with just so that they will understand that when you see me die, know this. Don't be discouraged. Know that the kingdom is beginning at that very moment. That I'm going to win. I'm going to triumph through defeat. That's what he wants them to understand. Okay? And here's the most interesting thing of all. Do you know, do you realize that Jesus Christ really, literally became the smallest of seeds? Did you know that? He's the Lord of the universe. uh, Immensity, uh, infinity, and yet he became the smallest of seeds. How small? How small? Well, think about this. He became a man. Okay. Enormity becomes a man. Infinity becomes temporal. But he became even smaller than that. He became a baby. But he became even smaller than that. He became an embryo. But he became even smaller than that. The Lord of the universe literally became a single cell. The smallest of seeds in the universe. And why? Why would he do that? He did it for you. He came so far down just For you, he became the smallest of seeds for you. And then, when he grew up, he was nailed to a tree, a wooden cross, which would become the great world tree that unites heaven and earth. Because on that wooden cross, you have the absolute ultimate example of the organizing principle of the kingdom there. You see, Jesus epitomizes in his life and in his death the central organizing principle of the kingdom. He emptied himself for you. On the cross, you have Jesus Christ winning through losing. You have Jesus triumphing through defeat. You have Jesus bringing uh, about infinite wealth into our lives because of his poverty. We have Jesus bringing infinite power and influence into the world through absolutely giving his power away. Jesus epitomizes that central organizing principle of the kingdom, that the way up is down, that the way to fullness is to empty yourself. Now, I told you guys at the beginning, I said, you know, I saw this movie, um, on Thursday night, you know, Southpaw. And here's what's interesting about it. One of the songs in the movie from the soundtrack is a song by Eminem. Raise your hand if you know Eminem, okay? Raise your hand. I'm not saying you had to listen to him, but have you, do you know who Eminem is? Raise your hand. Okay. Some of you, I'm wondering what world you live in that you have never heard of Eminem. Come on, seriously, you know you know Eminem, okay. Uh, this song on the soundtrack uh, that was, you know, in the, in the movie uh, is kind of an anthem to people who seek to make a name for themselves, right? And so uh, it's like an anthem to people who, as, who aspire to such greatness that they will always be remembered. You know, people whose success, whose fame, whose achievements are so great that you will never forget them. And I suppose it was because I had this passage in mind and how, how Jesus turns everything upside down, you know. Uh, I suppose because of that uh, that This song in the movie stuck out to me. And the name of the song, so ironic, the name of the song was Kings Never Die. Kings never die. People who live for themselves, people, who's, people who live for fame and celebrity and success and status and wealth and all of that stuff, they never die. That's, that's, that's the idea of the song, that their names live on forever. And I thought, As I watched this movie, as I heard the song, I thought, how ironic. Oh, and my kids love this when I point this out at the end of the movie. They love me bringing the theology into it. But but I thought, how ironic. The one king whose name will truly be remembered forever, who will be worshipped forever, was a king who did die. Emptying himself of power and strength and wealth and who triumphed not through victory, but by losing. And he did it for his people, for you and for me. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom has begun. And it begun, it began, excuse me, at the cross of Jesus Christ, the great world tree that unites heaven and earth.